Well, good evening. We welcome you to Sunday Night Bible Study. You can turn to Mark chapter 1, if you will. We're going to be in Mark for the next four weeks. It's going to take us right up to Easter, and we'll finish with the resurrection on Easter. So we're in Mark chapter 1. <laughs> Father, we come before you tonight, and we have to confess that no man is sufficient to speak about your Son, and yet you've put his words in our mouths, and you've put his life in this book, and you ask us to share and to speak. So Lord, forgive us for where we don't see properly. And I pray, Lord, that if it be your desire that in Mark our eyes would be open and that we would see Jesus as your son, that we would see Jesus as the Savior of the world, and Lord, that we would see Jesus as the life you're calling us to live. So God, empower your church, I pray, to take on these things that we are not sufficient for. I pray for grace to fall upon us, and God, I pray for faith to be resurrected in order to walk in the grace you're giving us. Oh Lord, let us know truly your son Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the Gospel of Mark. Mark, this is going to be fun. Um, Tonight we've got seven, uh, not short at all, seven chapters to just blaze through. So we're going to hit it hard to begin with, and then we'll ease up a little bit next week. So tonight, Mark chapter 1 through 7, and the title of this is called The Way of Freedom. And we're going to look at... Um, that tonight. Now, Jesus, we have been told, we believe, we say that Jesus is the way to God. And what Mark wants to say is that is true. And he wants to say that Jesus is the way to God because he traveled the way of God. That Jesus took upon himself what it means to come to the Father, and he showed us And now by following Jesus and putting our faith in him, we are journeying on the path to God. And Mark's main emphasis really is just that, that Jesus is the way. And so we're going to, as we go through Mark, look at the way and what it means in the different parts of what Mark has to say. So tonight, the way of freedom. Next week, the way of death. And the week after, the way of life. And then we got Easter. And the way we're dividing this up is we're going to follow Mark through the scenarios that he has painted his gospel in. So in the beginning, we have Jesus through Galilee, and he's doing lots of things. And as we're going to see, he's freeing people. So the way of freedom is Jesus in Galilee. And then the scene changes as Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem And with his disciples, he travels to Jerusalem, teaching them about the way of God along the way. And 
not an easy teaching he gives them. It's the way of death. He teaches them that if you're to follow me, you have to die to self. You have to pick up your cross. And then in the third week, we'll get to Jerusalem. And there Mark is going to have Jesus showing the way of life. And that the way of life comes rather surprisingly. It comes through a lot of conflict. It comes through the cross. And then finally, there's resurrection. And that's, that's the main message that Mark wants us to see, is the resurrection. So that's, that's where the way, the road, the path, that's where it's going ultimately. Jesus, we're going to follow on this way, all the way to his resurrection. Which is what is promised for all believers who follow Jesus. Is that at the end of time, we too will inherit resurrection. Amen? And that, of course, is Easter. And so we're, we're primed. We're ready to go to Easter. Okay, I'm excited. So. so a couple quick facts here about Mark. So we can orient ourselves with the gospel, and then we're going to go through our chapters here. So Mark is believed to be the very first gospel written of the four. There are different ideas. Um, some people propose that Matthew is the first, but the majority of people today believe that Mark is the first. And he wrote sometime in the 60s. Um, you, when you read the gospel, Mark, you get the sense that he could have indeed been the first. He's uh, the most sparse on details. He sort of is, it's really fast moving. He seems out of breath the whole time, uses words like immediately and throws things left and right. Like I can't even keep up with what's happening and boom, it's done. 16 short chapters and it takes about two hours to read. So then you get Matthew and you get Luke in the seventies, about 10 years after Mark wrote. And their Gospels are much fuller. Yet, their Gospels structurally mimic Mark's entirely. A lot of the stories run in the same order. The structure is the same. There's Galilee, there's the journey, then there's Jerusalem. And so it, it, it appears that although Luke and Matthew, Matthew being an eyewitness himself, and Luke knowing people in high places to get their Gospels written, also used Mark. And so that there's a collaboration that's going on as they're writing. So there's a development. Mark, the first, the simple. Then Matthew and Luke expound that a little bit further. And then in the 90s, you've got John, and his gospel is just different. So <laughs> he was um, doing his own approach. And so Mark is believed to be the first. Now, for many, many, many years, the church has neglected the gospel of Mark, being considered a poor version of Matthew. So basically, any scholar that wanted to study the gospel said, Mark, if anybody wants to get into that route, you do Matthew. That's the full one. That's the real one. Mark is just a bad version of Matthew. Well, recently, in the last 200 years or so, interest in Mark has increased, and we've realized that we have put on the bookshelf a very important gospel. Imagine that. It's in the Bible. <laughs> a very important gospel, and we're discovering that it has things to say on its own. It's not just a poor version of Matthew. It was the first one, and it has its own thing to say, and Matthew has his own thing to say. So that is, um, that's Mark being the first. Now, Mark. Mark. Who's Mark? Mark is in the book of Acts known as John Mark. He had a wealthy mother who lived in Jerusalem. Um, we see that when Peter gets out of prison in Acts, he runs to the first house he knows, and it's the house of Mary, the mother of uh, John Mark. Uh, his cousin is Barnabas. So Mark has a lot of connections within Jerusalem. He's a person that knows a person or two. And um, 
he, it is believed that he collaborated with Peter to write his gospel. That Peter, being one of the 12 disciples, got together with Mark and the gospel came about with them together. So whether or not Mark was an eyewitness to some of these things, we don't know. But what we do know is that the early church fathers unanimously agree that Peter discipled Mark. And so that Peter and Mark had a relationship. And uh, Papias, one of the early church fathers from the second century, early second century, um, he actually said that Mark served as Peter's translator. So they had a great teamwork thing going. And as Peter would go around preaching, uh, his native tongue is believed to have been Aramaic, which is what the Jews spoke in Jerusalem. And so Mark would go uh, as a translator for the Greek audience, if Peter ever did speak to one. So they got his team effort. And every now and then, if you want to flip ahead real quick to chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 41, every now and again you'll see an Aramaic phrase, like this one in 541. Jesus, taking her by the hand, said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Now, it would seem pretty ridiculous to write it that way, right? You would think, well, Mark, why don't you just, why did you have to just randomly throw in an Aramaic phrase and then translate it for us? And what's even funnier is that we're reading a translation of the translation. And it just seems so much simpler to say, and Jesus said to her, get up and rise. But he inserts the Aramaic And it's believed that the Aramaic phrases we find in the Gospel of Mark are Peter's actual recollections of the very voice of Jesus. That when he puts the Aramaic in there, Peter isn't just summarizing, he said something like this, or this is what he, you know. It wasn't that. Peter's remembering the voice. As Jesus spoke in Aramaic to the people, Peter's capturing those exact phrases and preserving them there. And so Mark puts those down and then translates it for us. So uniquely about Mark is that this gospel gets us closer than any other to the actual voice. Not just words. They're all pretty accurate there. But the actual voice of Jesus. It's, if we listen to Mark, we might actually hear. So... Um, Mark and Peter tag team it. Why are they writing? Well, on a hot summer morning, July 80, 64, two separate fires break out in Rome and eventually destroys much of the city. Ten of the 14 districts are very much damaged. And as the refugees are outside of the city, they get together and have their theories. And rumor has it that Nero... The Roman emperor is the one who set fire to the city. It couldn't be an accident, because why would two fires break out in two different locations at the same time? It seemed planned, and Nero became the subject of blame. And Nero, of course, can't have his people blame the emperor, who's worshipped as a god. So what he does is he blames the Christians. And so now the Christians are having a fiery trial, a really hard time. And so Peter writes encouragement to persecuted Christians in his epistles. And Mark and Peter get together and write a story of Jesus to encourage the persecuted church of times to come, saying, look at Jesus and what he went through. And be encouraged. Because there was, the cross wasn't his end. There was another chapter after that. And look at the disciples and how they reacted to persecution. And don't imitate them. 
<laughs> but if you do, if, if one of you do choose to side with Peter's mistake of denial, know that Peter is still following Jesus and there's hope for you. So Mark becomes a, a book to a persecuted church and says, this is how, keep pressing through in persecution. And then um, Peter and Mark write this, and it is believed that Mark was not meant to be read, although it is read and it can be read, but that Mark wrote for the purposes of oral performance. That Mark wrote this down, and the idea was that since only 3 to 5% of the population could read or write anyways, the majority of people would be hearing the gospel of Mark. And so it was written in such a way that an orator, a storyteller, could remember it from memory and then recite it to the people. And it only takes about two hours to recite the whole gospel, which is about your attention span of a human being. So uh, our movies run about two hours. So you're, they're at dinner and they're, you know, they're eating the churches together. And like, hey, hey, you, uh, you, got, you, got, you know the story of Jesus. Why don't you share it? And boom. He starts telling the story that Mark wrote down for us. And these, this wasn't just, you know, dry reading, like, and then Jesus said. They would use facial expressions. They would change their voice. They would use bodily actions. They would use volume and pitch and pace and all these different ways to tell the story to draw you in. And just think about like a campfire ghost story, right? How people use all of these things to get you in and get you scared and get you to believe it. This is how they, the storytellers would tell the story of Jesus. And so you'll notice as you go through the gospel that Mark isn't trying to write chronologically. Okay, his goal here isn't this is exactly what happened in the next step, next step, next step. He's taking things of Jesus' life and he's putting them together thematically, connecting them with uh, either verbal links or uh, sometimes you're going to see what's called sandwiching. There's an episode where Jesus' family's asking for him, then Jesus has a conflict with the Pharisees, and then Jesus' family's asking for him. That's a sandwich. Jesus curses a fig tree, he cleanses the temple, then the fig tree's withered. That's a sandwich. And you're going to see that through Mark. That's another way he connects things together. And the reason is, is so that the storyteller can remember the story better. And if you pick up on these connections, you're going to find you'll remember the story of Mark better. And I'm going to point one of those out here later tonight. So it, it, was, it seemed that it was designed to be performed and to be spoken. Um, and then finally, in Mark's gospel, there is one main conflict. And you guys know that Jesus has conflict with the religious leaders. He's also going to have conflict with creation demons, diseases, and also, unfortunately, with his disciples. Conflict is swirling in the gospel, Mark. And the source of this conflict is power. What is power? Who gets power? Who has power? Jesus and the religious leaders. The religious leaders say power is about serving the self. It's about protecting our position. It's about making conservative choices. Jesus would say, no, power is about serving others. Power is about giving life to others. It's about willing to take risk for others. And the disciples, the disciples know only one way of looking at power. Our religious leaders, the Roman government, all of this as power is about taking life to amass yourself, to hold control to keep your distance, and to rule over people. 
And Jesus has to reteach the disciples. We're going to see this over and over again next week. He's going to have to reteach them. That's not power. That's man's power. I'm here to show you the way of God's power. It gives your life. It's willing to do whatever it takes so that the other is loved and whole and given life. It takes risk. So we're going to see that conflict of power. God's power versus man's power. Not which is stronger, but they have two different approaches to how to be powerful. So with all that, we're now entering into the gospel of Mark. So let us, in 1 verse 1, read. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. It's an important word in Mark. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So Mark begins rather immediately. Waste no time. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Boom. It said in Isaiah that the way will be prepared. Here's John. Here's Jesus getting baptized. Here he is in the wilderness. Here he is calling disciples. Here he is healing people. It's just so fast. You're like, oh my gosh, Mark, breathe, breathe. And Mark saying, you have no idea. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I have to say it as fast as I can. I can't stop. This is the good news. And this isn't just good news like, well, you know, so-and-so won the lottery today. This is good news that interrupts history and changes history forever. That kind of good news. The word gospel was used to um, declare when a Roman emperor ascended to the throne of the empire. So when Caesar Augustus becomes emperor, that is called gospel. Good news, O earthlings. You have a new Caesar. That means big time news. And Mark says, I have big time news. This is the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. You all have heard Caesar's gospel, but we have a better one. And let me say this quickly, lest I lose your focus. (laughs) So he goes right on in. And what we're going to see here in this first whole section of Mark, chapters 1 through 7, is the way of freedom. And as Mark opens his gospel with two references to the way, that's exactly what he wants us to grab onto, is that I'm here to tell you about the way. Malachi 3.1. That's the verse he quotes there in verse 2. Malachi 3.1. Malachi said, a messenger will come and prepare your way. Later in that citation, Malachi goes on to say, and the Lord will appear at the temple. Jesus does that. Verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. There he's citing Isaiah 40 verse 3. So what Mark does right off the bat He says, the way was prophesied in the Old Testament, and I'm here to show you that the way is paved before you today. Join it, walk in it, and find what's on the other end of the way. So we have the way being prophesied in the Old Testament. We have the way in the Exodus story itself. 
If you don't know, exodus is two Greek words. Ek means to come out, and hados means way. Ek hados. That means the way out. And throughout the story of the exodus, mostly in Deuteronomy, you'll, he, you'll see God saying things like, when they worshiped the golden calf, they left the way I made for them. Or when they did this, they turned aside from my way. And so in the Exodus, you have this way from slavery over to the promised land, which God is leading them. That's the way of God. And so there's a way in the wilderness. And here, Mark says, it's coming to pass. You have a messenger, you have a prophet, you have a voice in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord, make the path straight. It's time to walk on the highway. And so John shows up in verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And now John, so the prophets, the Exodus story talked about the way. John shows up in the wilderness. Israel is in the wilderness. John is in the wilderness and says, the way, the way, make straight the way. And then we're introduced to Jesus in verse 9. In these days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So now we're introduced to Jesus, and he goes to the wilderness. Israel wandered through the wilderness. John goes out to the wilderness. The way is here. Jesus goes out to the wilderness to meet John. He's baptized. And the imagery doing this baptism in the Jordan River in the wilderness was to call Israel to come back to God's promises. Remember how Israel went through God's way in the wilderness and they finally get to the promised land and they had to cross the Jordan River and enter into the promised land? This is what John's doing. He's calling Israel to get ready for the coming one. And so they go out to the wilderness, east side of Jordan, and they cross through the Jordan and enter back into the homeland. They're redoing the Exodus. And they're, they're, they're retracing the way and they're getting ready. Yes, make the way straight. Bring the one to lead us on the way, the new Moses to guide us. And then Jesus appears and he goes through the baptism. And from that moment on, the attention is, follow him. He, he knows the way. He's paving it. He's walking it. So Jesus, in verse 12, uh, immediately the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And so Jesus understands. Israel started the way in the wilderness, but failed John declared the way in the wilderness, and now here it is. Jesus goes to the wilderness. He's starting on the way, and he's saying, follow, follow. And that's literally what he says. We see there in verse 16 that he's passing along the Sea of Galilee, and he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me. You can just imagine, where, where are we going? <laughs> I'm going to Jerusalem. Not yet, of course. It'll take a few years. 
But I am eventually, the way I'm walking, the way I'm calling you to follow me on, it's going to take me to Jerusalem. What's going to happen in Jerusalem? Of course, this conversation didn't happen, but you can imagine in Jesus' mind as he calls them, what's going to happen in Jerusalem? I'm going to confront the powers that be. What's going to be the result? Are you going to win? More or less. (laughs) Boy, do they have no idea what they're getting into. But wait. It's full of promise. It's full of life. It's also full of darkness. It's full of hardship. Turn, if you will, to Isaiah 35. You will want to see this. Isaiah chapter 35. The concept of the way is best illustrated here in Isaiah chapter 35. So I'm going to it's, it's worth our read, so we're going to read it. Isaiah chapter 35, verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon, it's a great fruitful forest, shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, another fruitful place. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. So strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. God is going to come. How are we going to know? What is it going to look like? Verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert— The burning sand shall become a pool, the thirsty ground springs of water, in the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. What are you seeing? You're seeing this promise, your God will come. What's going to happen? The desert will blossom like a garden. The wilderness will no longer be wild, it will be tamed. Human beings who are maimed and diseased will be healed and liberated. In some, God's going to come and you're going to know it because the creation and its people are going to be healed. And finally, verse 8. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. And then in verse 10, the ransomed of the Lord shall return. So there's going to be a liberation and they're going to return and come to Zion. That's the mountain of Jerusalem. Come to Zion with singing everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee. There you have it. 
In the wilderness, Isaiah is crying out that in the wilderness, things are going to happen. Gardens are going to bloom. People are going to be healed. God will come. And when all this happens, there will be a way called the highway of holiness. And upon that way, people will be liberated, walk it to Zion. And so you can almost see all of this as Jesus looks at James and John, Peter and Andrew, all in their fishing boats and says, follow me. Where are we going? We're going to Zion. We're going to watch creation be healed. We're going to watch people be healed. We are going to show people the way, and we're going to show them how to walk it. That's where we're going. So, what do we expect to see Jesus do? Heal people and heal the creation. And what does he do? Heals people and heals the creation. Albeit, I know some of you are thinking right now, well, I mean, yeah, he did a few miracles back then, but come on, tsunamis, we just had an earthquake the other day, like the creation's not healed. Well, did you know that there can be such thing as a preview of things to come? And that's what we're dealing with. Jesus, as he heals people and does little things with the creation, is basically saying, Look, guys, you want to follow the way because it's going to get to the promise that all things are healed and made right again. Here's a preview of what's to come. Watch this person walk. Look at this blind man see. Look at this disease leave. Watch me calm the storm. And the shocking subtlety of all of this is that Isaiah said these things will happen when God comes to save So although Jesus never overtly says the exact words, I am God, he sure acts like he thinks he is. He sure does things as if he was. <laughs> All right, enough with that. That's the way. And we're going to see it, it liberates, it frees. Now, why do we need freedom? Well, go with me to Mark 3, verse 27. Mark chapter 3. Now, what's happening in Mark chapter 3 is we have a lot of conflict. And it even comes down to the fact that his family is saying, whoa, Jesus, you're losing your mind. So they come to him, tell him to settle down and to fix things. And then the scribes and the religious leaders get in on this. And they say, yeah, he is out of his mind. You know why? Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. Read Satan. He is empowering Jesus to cast demons out. And then everyone <gasps> looks at Jesus. What are you going to say to that? <laughs> and Jesus says something very logical. Come on, guys. Can, wh- why in the world would Satan cast Satan out? You don't fight yourself. It's illogical and it's unproductive. So are you really believing that that's what they're telling me I'm doing? I'm empowered by Satan to kick Satan out of the earth and to beat up his kingdom. It's ridiculous. And then he says this, uh, Mark three twenty seven. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. So there are goods in this house, and there's a strong man guarding it. How do you get the goods inside? You bind the strong man. You get him out of the way. Tie him down. He can't do anything. I'm going to call the police. <laughs> Watch. And they take all the stuff and leave. So Jesus is saying the strong man is Satan. 
and I am plundering his house. I have come into this world, and he is now bound, and he has no power over me, and I am plundering his goods. There are people possessed by demons. There are people suffering from disease. There are people who are in the shackles of Torah, the Jewish law. And I am here to liberate. I am here to rob the things that Satan has stolen. I guess it's not really robbing, but to to take them back. I've bound the strong man. When? In the wilderness. Remember, he was driven out to the wilderness and tested. And there, we know, of course, in fuller accounts from Mark and Luke, um, Matthew and Luke, that he had this whole conflict with the devil, and he triumphed in every way. The devil had no power. He had no way to bind and put Jesus in his bondage like he has with the rest of the world. And so what we're seeing here is that in Luke's gospel of Jesus, Luke Mark, pardon me. I taught Luke a a few weeks ago, so it's like in my head. Mark's gospel, Mark's, the way he sees Jesus is he's coming into a world that Satan has tyrannized, that Satan has put large shackles on. And Jesus has said, Satan, be bound, get away. And he has fled. Well, how do we know that? That's his answer to how he's casting demons out. You couldn't possibly cast these demons out unless you've dealt with Satan. So he's bound, and I am free to plunder. Now, of course, his binding is to an extent, right? Satan still has influence, and we'll see his permanent binding. Uh, U.S. eschatology thinkers are thinking Revelation 20. Well, that's where the final binding happens. But so here's Jesus, and he says, I am plundering. That's what I'm here to do. So bondage. That's why the way is the way of freedom is because there's a world of bondage. And now Satan has chosen to bind, at least in Israel's context where Jesus is, he's bound people by using two tools, two tools that were given by God to serve man. But in man's fall and in man's sinfulness, Satan has seized the opportunity to reverse these tools and make them taskmasters. Make sense? So there were tools given to man to serve man, but Satan has manipulated man's sin to make them slaves of these tools. What are these tools? They are creation, and it is the Torah, the law of Moses. Creation, it's meant to serve man. It's meant to feed him. It's meant to shelter him. Man is meant to take care of it. But what do we see in the world today? We see a lot of people that aren't being served by creation. We're enslaved by creation. Famine. We have no control to stop that sometimes. Drought. We can't make it rain. And when it doesn't rain, we suffer the consequences. Earthquakes and tsunamis and diseases. Sickness. Death. All of these things have the best of us. And when they happen, we can try to do things and better things. But ultimately, We are the slaves of the creation. And that's not the way God meant it, but that's how it's become because of our lust for power. And so Satan manipulates this. And what does he do? We see in the gospel, there are many people that are under disease. The disciples are terrified of a storm. The Romans, people, part of creation, the Romans are tyrannizing Israel and demanding heavy tax and tribute. And demons, part of the creation. Demons 
are enslaving human beings. So yes, there's bondage. Torah, not just creation, but Torah. The religious leaders are using Torah for control. Now, as Satan uses creation to control, (laughs) the religious leaders are using Torah to control the people. How so? Well, these people fit under that category. Those people fit under that category. These are unclean. Those are sinners. Those are unworthy. These are clean. These are pure. These are holy. Labeling, right? The religious leaders are good at labeling people. What do labels do? Labels dehumanize people and fit them into our own created category for the sake of controlling them. An unlabeled person is a dangerous person because you never know what you can expect from them. But if you label somebody, they are now predictable. They are diminished into what you see them as. And you label an entire society, it's much easier to control. And the religious leaders are fearful. They're fearful of the Romans. We have to control the people or else Rome will take away our rights. Rome will tax us even more. So let's control the people. Let's use the Torah. You can't do that on a Sabbath day. You can't talk to them. You can't eat with them. You know when you do that, you owe the temple. So Satan is binding humanity, we're seeing, and Jesus is going to step up to the plate. He's bound Satan. He's going to plunder the house. And so he's going to free people from the control of creation and the religious leader's Torah. And by the way, did you notice that, what's happening? The religious leaders are controlling in the same way Satan is? As if there's a collaboration And in effect, what Jesus says here in chapter 3 is, you blame me of collaborating with Satan? Quite the contrary. You use his ways to control. You can't control the creation, so you've controlled what you can. You scribes, you know-it-alls of the Torah. Stop binding people like Satan does. So we're setting the scene for major drama and conflict. So how does Jesus plunder Satan? We're going to watch him do this. He's going to attack right away the two things, creation, Torah. So the miracles, number one, the miracles. This is how he tackles Satan's control over creation to enslave people. The miracles come in and they say, no more, you're free. Now we usually think of a miracle as being a strange interruption into the natural order of things, right? Right? The the universe has a natural order and things are supposed to work this way and that way and we can explain it and there's science behind all of it. But all of a sudden something happens that's abnormal and you can't really explain it and we call that a miracle. Well, in Mark's view, the miracle isn't necessarily an interruption of the natural order. It's rather an eruption. It's an invasion of God's order over the demonic order of this world. It's not this, whoa, what happened interruption? Mark is seeing that there's a demonic disorder. And when God does a miracle, his rule is invading and it's saying, no more. My order reigns here. And so the difference is this. We think of miracles as like, wow, that's so strange. It's so abnormal. The Bible looks at miracles and says, no, 
That is normal when God reigns. The abnormal is the chaos around you. And that's an important distinction, I think, that we'll see as Jesus does these miracles. So here he is, uh, 121. 121, he just called his disciples to follow him, some of them at least. And in 121, we see this episode, his first miracle in Mark. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. Authority. In other words, he taught as if he wrote this stuff. He taught like he knew he was talking. By the way, authority, author, right? So the scribes are like, well, we're going to study someone else's work. And she's like, I know this. Listen to how it really is supposed to go. And so they're marveling. He's like, wow, it's almost as if he isn't using this to control us, but as if he really knows the heart and the purpose of the Torah. Verse 23, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out. Now, we just read this and like, oh yeah, a demonic man is up there and he's just disturbing things. Like, cool. But can you really imagine that happened right now? I'm talking, you guys are listening, and then all of a sudden Richard starts screaming and wailing and tearing his clothes and running up here. Like, you would be a little taken aback, right? You'd be disarmed. So, I mean, this is, and this is troubling. And of course, as Jesus is freeing people, hearing what the Torah is meant to sound like, Satan isn't happy. So there he goes, sends off one of his minions, right? <laughs> um, what have you to do, verse 24, with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere through all the surrounding region of Galilee. And there he goes. I am liberating this person. You're no longer enslaved to this demon. You're free. And he joins him on the way. And then in verse 29, you know, he leaves the synagogue and he goes to Peter's house and heals his mother-in-law who's down with a fever. You're free from the bondage of creation. Fever leave and it leaves and she serves them. And then verse 32, you know, at sundown it says that like a whole village came and brought the people possessed with demons and those who are sick, healed them all. There is a lot of liberating going on. Satan's use of creation to control the people is breaking down, and the rule of God is triumphing. This is the way of freedom, he calls to them. Then, one more scene for miracles. Look at 4 verse 35. Go up to 4 verse 35. Four thirty-five. On that day... When evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. 
And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. Now you can imagine the panic, right? But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He awoke, rubbed the sleep out of his eyes, stretched, yawned, (laughs) and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. Or the Greek reads the exact same as what we had read before. To the demoniac man, be silent. It's the exact same Greek word. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Remember, the demon-possessed man convulsed before the demon left him. And here's the sea. It's convulsing, and now there's a great calm. Um, Notice he also rebukes the sea and the wind. He rebuked the demon in the other story, right? And then verse 40. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? That's what they asked in the other episode. What is this teaching? Now they're asking, Who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. Remember what they said in the last episode? What is this? Even demons obey him. Here we have a very intentional paralleling, right? These two episodes were meant to be looked at side by side, together. We have rebuking, we have be quiet, we have questioning what in the world is going on. And we have it obeys him in both episodes. Now, here's what's interesting. Here's what got me is you're looking at the, demand, the, the man with the demon. You're like, well, duh, you got to rebuke the demon and you tell him to be quiet and stuff. But he rebukes nature? See, when, when you look at these two episodes together, you're realizing that Jesus is treating the storm the same exact way that he treats the man possessed by a demon. What is going on? And that's what we're seeing in Mark's story here is that Jesus came to free people from Satan's abuse of creation. Mark is seeing that there is a demonic presence in this storm, that it is trying to master and get the best of the disciples. But Jesus says, disciples, it need not to be this way. You were meant to master the sea. Do you remember Genesis chapter 1? Let them have dominion over the birds, the animals, the trees, and then, of course, the fish of the sea. Let them have dominion. That's why he says, where is your faith? Now, of course, we're fallen, and it's beyond our ability to do so. But Jesus' point is crystal clear. The way of freedom is here. Follow me. I will show you how to not be a slave anymore. So he tackles creation with his miracles. Now he's going to tackle Torah with conflict. Let's go to chapter 2, verse 1. Now in 2, 1 through 3, 6, it's one string of conflicts. And it's all being united um, by... Some of you guys know your literary terms. Totally fine. If you don't know this word, no one really does, unless you read about it. It's called a chiasm. Um, a, a better way maybe to think about it is concentric circles. 
You know what concentric circles are, right? It's where you have, think of a bullseye. It's where you have the middle circle, and it is enclosed by another circle, which is enclosed by another circle, right? So it's, it's like a bullseye and a target. And so the point of a chiasm or concentric circle in literature is that you're working from one end to the other, and the bullseye, the middle, is the, is the meat of the story. But now, you think, you know, how a bullseye, I think it's yellow in the middle, right? And then it goes out with colors, say, I don't know, red and blue. Well, as you're coming across the target, you go blue, orange, yellow, orange, blue, right? So that the outer band is the same, the inner band is the same, and the middle is the same, okay? So you're going to work from one end, it's blue. And by the time you get to the other end, it's blue again. So that's what you're going to see here in these conflict episodes, is you're going to see healing, eating, the center, eating, healing. You see it? Make sense? Okay, so that's how Mark orders this section. So 2 verse 1. You have the healing. So he returned to Capernaum after some days. It was reported that he was at home. Now, you guys know this one. There were many people at the house, and he was teaching. And it was so crowded that people were outside. They were hanging in the windows, off the chandeliers. They were under the couch. They were everywhere. Feet were on the sofa. The owner was upset, and all these things, right? (laughs) I just thought of a funny scene. If you've seen The Hobbit, um, (laughs) when all of the dwarves enter into Bilbo's house, yeah, it probably looked like that. (laughs) So there's people everywhere. And... um, Four men are carrying a, paraly- a paralyzed man on a stretcher. And we know Jesus is in there. We know he has authority over creation to rebuke this disease. So we want to get him to him. We want to liberate our friend. Oh, everybody's here. So they, you know, undo the roof and lower him in. And you can imagine if we talked about Richard, like, shrieking while I'm talking. You guys would be alarmed. Well, what if the roof caved in on top of me? Well, you know, you guys would all be alarmed as equally. And so the man is lowered and Jesus heals him, right? Um, and what's interesting about this part is in verse 5, he looks at this paralytic and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. You see, there's something deeper than just the fact that creation is enslaving people, that he is a slave to his own paralysis. But it's that because of sin we're enslaved, and the soul itself has become a captive, and that Jesus isn't just into making lives feel better He's not just into curing the disease, but he's also into helping the illness deep down inside. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. I'm cleansing the whole man. And then the paralysis leaves too, and he gets up and he walks. Now, the conflict begins oh so subtly here when the Pharisees are list- or the religious leaders are listening to this, and they're going, that's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God? It just starts with a question. And then, of course, they call him out, and he answers. Then, verse 13. So now we have the eating section. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. Levi is Matthew, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. And he said to him, follow me. He's, he's inviting him to join him on the way. And he rose and followed him. Tax collectors, what? The tax collectors were hated because they collaborated with the enemy, Rome. They were basically denying and betraying their own people. 
Yahweh, who's that? Jewish family and friends, who are you? I work for the Romans, and I'm taking your money to pay them. Really not likable people. And so, of course, the religious leaders are controlling the people of Torah, and they're saying things like, you can't associate with tax collectors. Because this is what happens. Levi begins to follow Jesus. Levi has a party in his house, and there are all sorts of people just like Levi in this house. And there's Jesus in the middle of them, talking with them, eating with them, telling them stories, probably parables and stuff. And the disciples are there, maybe sheepishly, kind of like on the outer perimeter of the home. Like, should we really be here? Oh no, the religious leaders are coming. What are they going to, one foot in, one foot out, right? Kind of thing. And Jesus is fully in. And the religious leaders do exactly what the disciples knew was going to happen. You can't eat with these people. We've labeled them as unclean. You're not one of them. You can't fraternize. You can't get together. Oh, really? Jesus says. So you're using the Torah to control us, are you? Well, listen to this. I have come not for the well, but for the sick, because the sick need a physician. I am liberating these people from your control. Now we go to verse 18. So we've had healing, we've had eating, now we have the center. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples fast and yours don't? Okay. So here they are now imposing their rituals on them. You're supposed to be fasting. Um, If you want to look a little bit at fasting, see Zechariah chapter 8. It is believed that this wasn't just general fasting, and Jesus is like, who needs that? General fasting is probably a good thing, but this is a specific fasting, mourning um, the past, the loss of their kingdom, when Israel's enemies broke up their temple and ruined the dynasty and stuff. It's fasting to mourn over that, so it's a very ritual thing. And Jesus is like, let me, let me tell you why my disciples don't do this. We don't play your game. I'm doing something new. I am inviting people on the way. You're keeping them off of it. And so he tells them this parable. You don't put new wine in old wineskins. Because when the new wine ferments, the old wineskins that should have lost their elasticity, it'll break and burst. New wine needs new wineskins. Listen up, you religious leaders. I am the new wine. The way. It's going somewhere. It's going to the new creation. And it's slowly going to ferment. And it's going to grow. And it's going to add. And you're going to see all sorts of things. And the only people not fit for the way are the ones not willing to stretch. They're the ones that continue to try to manipulate and to hold people using the Torah to control them. Those are the people that won't be able to handle the way because the way won't be controlled. And when you try, you're going to find that it is going to grow right out of your grasp and you're going to be left with nothing. So that's the center. Now eating again in verse 23. This is where they were going through the grain fields. By the way, it's a Sabbath. Another Torah form of control. (laughs) And the disciples are eating um, grain as they're walking by. You know, they're rubbing the shaft off and they're eating it. And the the religious leaders stand up out of the bushes with their camo and their binoculars and say, We got you! We knew it! (laughs) And Jesus, Jesus probably sees right through this, right? Here they are, their agenda, their control. They're abusing the Torah to control people again. And so he looks at them and says this, Verse 27, the Sabbath was not made, I'm sorry, the Sabbath was made for man, 
not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man, me, is Lord even of the Sabbath. Read it this way as well. The Sabbath was made to serve man, not man serve the Sabbath. The Sabbath is here to serve you, and you've turned it into something that we're enslaved to. Stop your control gimmick. I am liberating people from your grasp, your abuse of the Torah. It's going, the Sabbath is going to serve us now. And then finally, healing. So we've seen healing, eating, the center, eating, and healing. Chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. But guess what? It's the Sabbath. So, now, of course, the religious leaders are saying he can't heal him. He can't do it. No, you can't. No, according to our rules, you can't do that. But Jesus looks at them. Verse 5. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And in verse 4, one above, he said to them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? I'm sorry, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save a life or to kill? If the Sabbath was meant to serve us, should it not become a source of healing? But if the Sabbath enslaved us, it should be a source of harm. So he heals him, just to make his point. And ironically, to prove that the Sabbath is meant for life, the religious leaders go to the Herodians in verse 6 and collaborate to kill him. Listen, creation, the Torah. Torah for us would be any sort of religion, right? Even Christianity, which we, we are prone to say many, much of the time, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. Totally, I'm with you on that. That's exactly where I am too. But for the sake of conversation, it fits in the religious category, right? And we sometimes use Christianity as a religion. So creation and religion are two ways that man is being grabbed and pulled down in bondage. And Jesus stands up and says, this is not my way. My way liberates people. Religion has no hold on you. And creation shouldn't have any hold on you. And I know there are times when there are illnesses that you can't help. There will be a day when that will be gone. But for now, because of my power, you don't have to let your cancer, you don't have to let your ailment or your disease dictate how you live. You can have my joy and my hope in the midst of that and conquer it. And this is what he does. Jesus takes creation and religion and puts it underneath man and says, these are meant to serve you and to bring dignity to your life. Satan takes creation and religion and puts it over man and says, these are meant to control you and to enslave you and to limit you. With Satan and the religious leaders, creation and religion are dehumanizing. It's ripping dignity out of people. I don't care that this man needs healing. The Torah says, the Sabbath does this. And Jesus looks at that and says, if your religion dehumanizes and rips human dignity out of people, it is not God's religion. As James 1.27 says, pure and undefiled religion is this. It's taking care of orphans and widows. It is redignifying human beings that are down on their luck. Amen. And, so, <laughs> and so Jesus 
is pulling people on the way of freedom and saying religion is no longer your master. Creation is no longer your master. And some of us go around and we are, we're, we're, you don't may not even know it, but you're enslaved to creation. And Jesus is calling you to wake up to it. It might be food that you are enslaved to. It might be television that you're enslaved to. It might be sex that you're enslaved to. It might be the need for money that you're enslaved to. It might be the opinion of other created human beings that you're enslaved to. But whatever your enslavement to creation is, Jesus says that doesn't happen on the way. Follow me and find freedom. Food doesn't master you. Sex doesn't master you. All the things of this earth aren't to master you. They're meant to benefit you and to serve you. People who follow my way learn how to use these things properly. I mean, Hollywood, they don't necessarily know how to use light and film and sound properly. I mean, they're really artistic and good at what they do, but it's enslaving people. But those that follow the way, they know how to use those things too. And they also know how to use them in ways that liberate people. You know, in the the Christian way, young people have such a hard time with the whole thing of chastity and purity and all that stuff. But listen, the bottom line is that Christianity is saying sex as a part of creation wasn't meant to enslave you. It was meant to serve you. You master it. Meaning, if you just go off in, you know, premarital sex or adultery or pornography or whatever it is, sex has mastered you when you fall into those things. You have obeyed its commands. Christianity is saying following Jesus on the way gives liberty and sex is meant for one place because you are in control. It's serving you now. It's benefiting. It's bringing life and wholeness, not destruction and decay. And you use all of the items of creation. That's how it works. And some of you might be in bondage to creation and Jesus is speaking into your life right now. Follow me. I will liberate you from that. When we realize that he's not out to take things away, but he's out to restore the proper order of things, suddenly there's power given to us. God isn't telling me to completely give up eating. He just tells me to eat right. Or that sex is not appropriate for any Christian at all. As some have taken the stance. No, he's just calling us into following him in those things. Liberation. Religion. Some of us might be under the bondage of religion. Week after week, you just keep thinking, I don't get it. I'm not a good Christian. I'm not performing well. I'm not like Pastor Mike. I don't have joy today. The Bible says I should have joy. Therefore, I'm doing things wrong I don't have a good voice. I don't get these worship songs. To be honest, some of these sermons bore me. What's wrong with me? Am I a bad Christian? Don't let the matters of religion dictate you. Jesus is liberating you from the need to be good enough for him. He came to tell you, you're good enough for me. Paul told the Ephesian leaders, protect them, keep them. God considered them worth dying for. And he says that about you. Don't be enslaved to religion. Don't let it manipulate you and tell you who you are and how to live. Rather, let religion serve you. And here, of course, don't don't be bothered by my semantics here. 
Christianity relationship. Let that serve you. Let that help you understand who God is. Also, don't use your beliefs to enslave people. Don't impose your ideas of purity on other people and make them live like you. You're being a religious leader. Don't label people either. That's what the religious leaders did as well. Well, they are of that category, so you know how to deal with them. Jesus said they're people. It's one category. And even while they're doing that with Gentiles, they're their own category. Jesus said they're people. They have the spirit of life in them. They were created in my Father's image. I have plans for them. I want to liberate them. Do not label people. Whether it's a label of sin or a label of religious beliefs or theology. Look, I understand there are different things out there. And I'm not denying that there's differences. There are. But don't make the person their difference. Don't dehumanize them by that label. Oh my, those last 10 minutes flew. Okay, well, in application and finish, (laughs) um, that's the way of freedom. Jesus wants your freedom from the creation, from religion. Why? So that you can now use creation and use religion to serve others. That's why you're free. Don't use them to enslave. Use them to serve. And you'll be following Jesus on the way. So I'm inviting you guys tonight, as we take communion, um, know what you're doing. You're stepping onto the path. You're following the footsteps. You're entering into freedom. And you're also relinquishing the power to control people. And you're saying... I am joining Jesus on the way of freedom. I am joining Jesus in the wilderness. So I invite you to join him now. If you never have, and you don't even know what that means, there will be a pastor or two in the back right here. Feel free to talk to them. Everybody will be getting up and going to the back anyways to grab communion. So you'll be, you won't be conspicuous. <laughs> So let's have the worship team come up and let's uh, prepare for communion.